You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Right now in the life of our church, and even in this room right now, we have many new believers in our midst. We have many who have been recently baptized. And one of the things that I enjoy most about having new believers here with us is that new believer zeal that often accompanies their faith and tends to rub off on those around them. Maybe you've heard that phrase before, new believer zeal. Sometimes this phrase is used to explain that initial fire, that initial excitement, that that initial sense of joy and purpose that usually follows someone's salvation. Maybe you can Think back to your own salvation and remember what it was like in those first few days walking with Jesus and how fired up you were for the things of the Lord. When someone first tastes the living water of Jesus Christ, when they first experience that undeserved grace and forgiveness and freedom from their sin, when they first truly understand why they were created and what their purpose is and they're able to see the world without the scales over their eyes, to see things clearly for the first time. When, when that first happens for them, not surprisingly, there's an intense amount of joy and zeal and passion that tends to well up inside of them. It's almost like a shot of spiritual adrenaline. And usually this new believer's zeal is infectious. It rubs off on those around them, and they're so excited about the Lord that they can't help but tell others about Christ and what he's done for them and the forgiveness that they've found. Think about the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. After Jesus gives her his living water, saves her, she goes back to her hometown in Samaria and tells everyone about what Jesus has done for her. And it says many believed because of her testimony. Salvation leads to immediate joy and worship and witness. But what what do we do when that new believer zeal starts to wear off? When the costs of following Jesus begin to mount in our lives, when the trials come, when the cares and concerns of the world start to return, when in our flesh the newness of everything starts to maybe not feel so new anymore, it starts to wear off. Unfortunately, this is not so uncommon for the Christian experience, otherwise we wouldn't even have that phrase, new believer zeal, it would just be Christian zeal that we all have. In Revelation 2 verse 4, Jesus admonishes the church in Ephesus because they had abandoned the love for Jesus that they had at first. In Psalm 51 verse 12, we find that David's joy was obviously waning because he asked God to renew in him the joy of God's salvation. Romans commands us to not be lacking in zeal. Because sometimes the love of Christ starts to fade in our lives and the joy starts to wane and the zeal starts to decrease. And when that happens, what do we do? What do we do? Well, here's what we'll find we ought to do according to our text this morning. We must learn to draw water once again from those life-changing wells of salvation. We must learn to regularly preach the gospel to ourselves, to regularly remind ourselves of what God has saved us from, remind ourselves of his greatness and all that he has gloriously and so graciously done for us in Jesus Christ. 
And as we seek to set our hearts and our minds on those things, on the wells of salvation and drink from them, so to speak, our hearts will then well up once again with that same gratitude and love for Christ and joy in the Lord and zeal that we first experienced when we drank from his wells of salvation. And that zeal for the gospel will return such that we cannot be silent about it. And so all of us in this room, whether we've been in Christ for decades or whether we're a new believer, we all need to learn to draw water from the wells of salvation each and every day that we might continue to bear fruit and continue the fire and continue to live zealously for the Lord. And we'll see all this in our text today. So let me read from Isaiah 12 and then I'll pray. Isaiah 12. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously, let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. For this opportunity, we have again this Lord's Day to open your word and to hear from it, to receive from it. Pray, Lord, that you would anoint my mouth, that everything I say would be anointed by your Holy Spirit, and in accordance with your word, that you would add your blessing to the reading and preaching of your word, and as your word goes forth, that the lost would be saved, that the bride of Christ would be strengthened. And that most of all, Jesus would be lifted high and glorified in all that's said. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So we're in the book of Isaiah this morning. In Isaiah 1 verse 1, we learn that Isaiah prophesied during the times of King Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And so that means that he prophesied around 700 or so years before Christ. The book Isaiah is the largest of the major prophets. It has 66 chapters, similar to how the Bible has 66 books. Chapters 1 to 39 contain prophecies directed mainly toward the people of God during Isaiah's time. And it warns them, the prophecies warn them of uh, the threat of Assyrian invasion. Chapters 40 to 55 contain prophecies primarily surrounding the Babylonian exile. And so there are important words for those believers, those people of God. And then the remaining chapters, chapters 56 to 66, are more general prophecies that sort of pertain to all times. And so all that to say, our chapter this morning is smack dab in the middle of that first set of prophecies, the first set of chapters that surround the threat of Assyrian invasion. Chapter 12 our chapter this morning marks the end of a sub-series of prophecies that began in Isaiah 7, in chapter 7 to 11, where Isaiah prophesies to 
Judah and to Israel and warns them of the coming judgment of God in the form of the Assyrian army. God's purpose, we find in these chapters, behind this impending judgment is to purify his people and to purge the evil from among their midst. Hopefully they will return to him through the judgment. And in the middle of all these prophecies, as we so often see in the prophets, we see God's mercy and grace shine through. And so in Isaiah 9 and in Isaiah 11, a coming Savior and a future King is promised in the midst of these warnings of impending judgment. So Isaiah 9 verse 6, we're very familiar with this verse, a famous verse, so famously foretells, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this would have been a recent prophecy given prior to Isaiah 12. Isaiah 11 refers to this, this Savior as a righteous branch or a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a king from the line of David. He's going to rise up and he's going to execute perfect just, justice and he's going to gather a remnant from among the nations, not just from Israel and from Judah. And so that brings us to our chapter this morning, chapter 12. It's on the heels of these prophecies. And Isaiah 12 speaks of the results of this future king's saving work. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on this passage, he says that this passage is speaking about gospel times. It's speaking about the times that will follow this king's great saving work. It's speaking about life in the kingdom of God after Christ has brought salvation to his people. In other words, it's speaking about us. It's instructive for us on the other side, now that we've experienced Christ's salvation. Really, this chapter outlines what life in Christ ought to look like. And so here we are, a weekend removed from Easter weekend, one week removed. Last weekend, we set aside time to specifically remember the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross, remember his resurrection. And so I believe this passage here today is really appropriate for us to consider what ought to then flow out of Christ's saving work. It speaks to the fruit that ought to be seen in our, the lives of those that have come to Jesus at Calvary and experienced his salvation. And so in other words, this text answers the question, what now? Jesus died and rose again. We've experienced his salvation. What now? What's next? What do we move on to? This chapter is divided into two songs. Uh, you'll, you may have noticed as we read that. The first song is found in verses 1 to 2. And it begins with the words, You will say in that day. Now the word you there is you singular. And so the first song is written to individuals. It's a song that's to be sung by individuals. The second song, though, is recorded in verses 4 to 6. And it begins with the same words, And you will say in that day. But the interesting thing is that the word you, for that introduction to that song, is you plural. So the second song is geared towards the community of believers, the community of faith. And in the middle of those two songs, we have this wonderful statement in verse 3, which says this, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And there lies our answer to that question, what now? What's next? 
Now that I've experienced Christ's saving work in my life, now that I've experienced and received salvation, what's next? Here's your answer, verse 3. With joy, you will continue to draw water from the wells of salvation. In other words, there's not really a next thing that you move on to. You don't move on from those wells of salvation to some other well. You continue to draw water from those wells day by day that you may be sustained in this life. And so just imagine for a moment that you were lost in a seemingly endless desert. You're in a desert place. It's hot, unbearably hot. It's dry. Your mouth is parched and your lips are dry. You're dying of thirst. You're so dehydrated, you don't even have, enough, you don't even have any sweat left to sweat out. And you've just about come to the end of yourself. And then out of nowhere, you find a well in the middle of this endless desert. And this isn't just any well. This is a well that contains the most pure, most refreshing, most life-giving water you've ever tasted. And the best part about this well is its water supply is infinite. It will never run out. And so what do you do as you find yourself in this endless desert that you can't get out of? Do you take a quick drink from the well, satisfy your thirst, and then move on and continue wandering in the desert, hoping that by chance you might find another well? No, you set up camp at this well. You pitch your tent. It becomes your life source. It becomes your daily provision. Spiritually speaking, once we drink from the wells of salvation, we don't ever move on from them because they're inexhaustible. They will never run dry. With Jesus, who the Bible says is our salvation, we have an infinite amount of living water available to us. And so we can return to him every single day and his well will never run dry. And we can be satisfied by his mercy and grace. Jesus says to that Samaritan woman at the well in John 4.14, he says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him I will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so this is the main focus of this passage and sermon, what it means to draw from the waters of the well of salvation. And as we continue to unpack this, we're going to look at those two songs. First song in verses 1 to 2, second song in verses 4 to 6. And I'll have two headings, two sermon points uh, as we look at each song. Here's the first one. The personal worship of the individual. We're going to look at the personal worship of the individual as we consider the first song. And as we study this song, we're going to see four characteristics of the personal worship of the individual. Thankfulness, fearless trust, divine strength, and joyful praise. Okay, so let's unpack each of those. Main point, personal worship of the individual we're going to look at four characteristics. First one is this, thankfulness. Thankfulness. Look at verse 1 again. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. And so the first fruit we see of salvation here in this text is thankfulness. The individual that draws from the wells of salvation, the individual that's been saved by the wonderful counselor in the righteous branch, is a thankful individual. He gives thanks to the Lord. And this should make sense to us as a first response, right? Imagine for a moment 
that you had an infinite financial debt. They're so significant that it doesn't matter how much you work or how often you work, how long you work, how hard you work, you cannot even barely scratch the surface of the debt that you've incurred. And then out of nowhere, someone comes along and just pays off your debt completely. What would be the first words out of your mouth to that kind of an individual? Thank you, right? Thank you. How could I have to repay you? Thank you. Well, if you are here today and you are a Christian, the Bible says your debt has been paid. And so we ought to be marked by thankfulness. We ought to be a thankful people. No exceptions. There may be some here this morning, though, that find it hard to be thankful at times. Right? It can be so easy to get into that state where all we do is grumble and complain. It's hard to be thankful at times. Maybe you're in that place right now. And you say, Pastor, how can I be thankful when my marriage is a wreck? How can I be thankful to God when my relationships with others are in the state that they're in? How can I be thankful to God when my child has gone wayward, the one that I've been praying for for so long? How can I be thankful to God when the career I worked for for so long has been taken away from me? How can I be thankful to God when my financial situation is what it is in such a desperate situation? How can I be thankful to God when my loved one has passed away? How can I be thankful to God in the midst of the times in which we find ourselves? Well, the, regardless of the, each of those trials, the answer to all of those questions is found in verse 1. Why ought our lives to be continually marked by thankfulness? Regardless, irrespective of our current circumstances, verse 1 gives us the answer. I will give thanks to you, O Lord. Why? For, you, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. The anger of God has been turned away. The biggest problem facing every sinner on planet earth right now, apart from Jesus Christ, is the wrath of God. That's the biggest problem. It's not Satan. It's not the world. It's not the trials of life. It's not anything else. It's the wrath of God. It's God himself and his wrath towards sinners. That's the biggest problem facing every unbeliever. John 3.36 says, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Romans 5.9 identifies the thing that we need saving from as the wrath of God. Hebrews 10.31 says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The greatest threat, the greatest danger facing every sinner outside of Jesus Christ is God himself. Think about that for a moment. I want to read for you an excerpt from... Uh, an infamous sermon preached by the Puritan Jonathan Edwards. The sermon is titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He preached this in 1741. And I'll just tell you this, if you're ever struggling with thankfulness in the Christian life, search that sermon on Google, read it, and remind yourself of what you've been saved from. And if you're a Christian, I would imagine thankfulness and gratitude will well up in your heart again. Let me read an excerpt from this sermon to remind you of what you've been saved from if you're in Christ. O oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. 
It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God, whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you but one moment. It would be dreadful to suffer the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God for one moment, but you must suffer it for all eternity. There will be no end to this exquisite, horrible misery. When you look forward, you shall see a long forever, a boundless duration before you which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul, and you will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. You will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, millions of millions of ages, in wrestling and conflicting with this almighty, merciless vengeance. And then when you have so done, when so many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you will know that all is but a point to what remains, so that your punishment will indeed be infinite. Oh, who can express what the state of a soul is in such circumstances? End quote. This is the wrath of God. Endless punishment. This is what we all deserve. And yet if you are in Christ, verse 1 is true of you. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. That fierce anger and wrath of God that was once turned towards you because of your sin has been turned away. Not because of anything you've done, but because God in his sovereign grace and for his good pleasure has chosen to save you. When you consider and you remind yourself afresh of that reality, how could you not be thankful? In fact, if you're not thankful, I'd question whether or not you're even saved. Whether or not you understand the gospel, how could we not rejoice? This in part is why it's so important to daily draw water from those wells of salvation, to preach the gospel to ourselves, to even contemplate regularly the fearsome wrath of God, to remind ourselves of what he saved us from, and then of course to remind ourselves of what Christ has done to purchase that salvation. He has propitiated the very wrath of God on the cross. This is the heart of the gospel message, that Christ has taken the wrath of God for our sins upon himself, thereby turning the wrath of God away from us. And according to verse 1, he's replaced his wrath with comfort. He's turned away his anger that he might comfort us. Christ drank every last drop from the cup of God's wrath so that we could drink from the well of his salvation. How could we not be thankful? How could we not be thankful? We're also reminded in verse 1 not only of what God has done, but of how deeply personal salvation is. These words are spoken of and are to be declared by the individual. You personally, 
If you can hear my voice, you personally, your greatest need is to have the anger of God turned away from you. And just because the anger of God has been turned away from your parents or from your spouse or from other friends or believers in this church, it doesn't mean that it's been turned away from you. You cannot piggyback on your parents' faith. You cannot piggyback on the faith of others. It needs to be a personal salvation. Jesus is a personal Savior. And until his wrath is turned away from you, there will be no salvation. And so let me ask you, you personally, have you had the wrath of God turned away from you? Have you had his anger for your sin turned away from you? Do you want relief and comfort from the guilt of your sin? If you do, your only hope is to come to Jesus Christ. That's your only hope. Come to him, the one who died on the cross and rose again, satisfying the wrath of God on behalf of his people. Turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus. Cast yourself upon his mercy and grace. Then and only then will verse 1 be true of you, and you need to do it personally. No one else can do it for you. Come to Jesus. And when you do, when that happens, when you come to Jesus and you experience God's salvation, how ought you to respond? With thankfulness. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thankfulness. That's the first thing we see of the personal worship of the individual. Here's the second thing we see. Fearless trust. Fearless trust. Verse 2. It says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. God is my salvation. The angry God of verse 1 has now become the gracious Savior here in verse 2. In fact, it says he himself is our salvation. Okay, this is a state of being. Of course, it's not a, it's not a verb, it's not an action. We believe that God saves, that he does save, but he does that because he is salvation. This flows out of his character. And so because of this, verse 2 continues, because God is my salvation, I will trust and will not be afraid. How amazing is that? Fearless trust. No, no fear. He will not be afraid because he trusts in the Lord. Think about this for a moment. The antidote to fear is a greater trust in the Lord, is it not? The antidote to fear is a greater trust in the Lord. If you had perfect trust in the Lord, there'd be no reason to fear because you would trust him in any and every situation. You trust that he's sovereignly in control of whatever situation or whatever thing in your life is tempting you to fear. And if you perfectly believe he's in control of that, then you're not going to fear it. You won't be afraid. So how do we better cultivate this kind of fearless trust in our lives? Well, it's again by living out verse 3. By drawing water regularly from the wells of salvation. And so when you're fearful or you're anxious, look to God who is your salvation. Remember what he's done for you. And bring that to bear upon whatever situation or whatever circumstances in your life is causing you to, to fear. And here's kind of how this works. If God has saved you from the greatest threat, namely his wrath, why would you then fear a much lesser threat? Because anything is much lesser than his wrath. If he delivered you from the greatest threat, then don't you think that in one way or another, 
you will deliver you from a lesser threat, that this lesser threat will not ultimately conquer you. In fact, Romans 8 says that we are more than conquerors through Christ over all these things. And so you need not worry or fear about anything because you've trusted God for deliverance from your greatest threat. Now you ought to trust him for deliverance one way or another from any lesser threat as well. Fearless trust. We must learn to trust the Lord. Here's the third thing we see. We see divine strength. This marks the personal worship of the individual who draws from the wells of salvation. We see divine strength. Verse 2 continues. For the Lord God is my strength. The Lord God is my strength. Now that phrase, Lord God, you might see that it's footnoted in your Bible. It's a very unique title for God that only comes up a couple of times in Scripture. The Hebrew for this word name for God is Yah Yahweh. So he uses a shortened name for Yahweh, just Yah. First three letters. And this title is first used in, for God in the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. And in many ways, we won't touch on all of them this morning, but in many ways, this song harkens back to that song of Moses in Exodus 15 after the Exodus narrative when the Red Sea was parted and the people of God were saved. In fact, Exodus 15 verse 2a is, also, is almost quoted verbatim here in Isaiah 12 in the verse we're looking at now. So if you were to go back to Exodus 15 and read that wonderful song of Moses, you would see the strength of the Lord put on display. That he was able to do what the Israelites could not do and save them from the Egyptians. Release them from the slavery of Egypt, part the Red Sea, toss the horse and the rider into the sea and deliver his people. And so here in these gospel times of Isaiah 12... Just as God's people in the Old Testament times would look back to the great deliverance that they experienced from the slavery of Egypt, we too ought to look back to our great deliverance from the slavery of sin. And as we do that, we're reminded and we're taught about how utterly incapable we are to deliver ourselves from spiritual danger. We could not do it. We could not save ourselves. We cannot deliver ourselves. But as we look back to that great salvation, we're also reminded about the strength of our all-powerful God, who was indeed able to save to the uttermost and to do what we could not do. This is what happens when we draw from those wells of salvation. We're reminded, in other words, of this very simple truth that we sing, that we are weak, but He is strong. As we think back to our own salvation, we're reminded of our own inadequacy, even as we're reminded of God's superior strength. And the more this happens in our life, the less likely we'll be in the various situations of our lives to rely on our own strength. And the more likely we'll be to rely on His. Ephesians 6.10 commands us, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Don't be strong in yourself, be strong in the Lord. We must drink from the wells of salvation to be reminded of this daily. Divine strength, finally, number four, the fourth characteristic from this first psalm we see is this, joyful praise, joyful praise. Not only is the Lord God my strength, but verse two says that he's also my song. The Lord God is my strength and my song. He's my reason for praise. Verse three, which we've referenced, begins with the words, with joy. We're to do all of this with joy. 
And then if you jump down to verse 6, it says, shout and sing for joy. Now, this is part of the song of the community, but this part of the song addresses the individual. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. Shout and sing for joy. In other words, we see here in these various verses in Isaiah 12 that saved people sing. Saved people sing, and they don't just sing, they sing for joy, they sing with joy. This is the natural result of considering the saving work of the Lord. We can't contain our, our joy and our excitement. We have to sing about it. One commentator noted, Song is called for not as an expression of inner elation, but as a response to the works of the Lord. It arises not solely from a stirring up of emotion, but from bending the mind to recall, ponder, and understand his majestic deeds. The more we reflect upon his saving work, the more we'll want to sing about it. Another commentator noted, no other form of human expressions so captures the whole human psyche as does singing. And so the more you draw from the wells of salvation, the more you'll want to sing about it. God's people, the community of faith, his church ought to be characterized by joyful praise. And this differentiates us from the world. Okay, if you brought in a worldly person to what just happened 20 minutes ago and they saw a room full of people singing, it wouldn't really make sense to them. Why? Because they don't have anything to sing about. They're miserable. They don't have joy. They don't have salvation. They can't relate. And so there ought to be a contrast between the church, the people of God, and the world. We ought to sing and we ought to sing loudly. Whether we're man, woman, or child, we've been saved from wrath. We've had God's anger turned away from us. And instead, we've been given comfort and grace and mercy. And we've, we're bound for glory, so how could we not sing? And how could we not sing with joy? How could we not be joyful people? You might say, oh, but Will, you don't know how difficult my life is right now. How could I be joyful in the state that I'm in? You try walking a day in my shoes. And maybe that's true. It probably is true. I, I don't know how difficult your life is right now. But I do know that it's not nearly as difficult as it would be if you were suffering under God's wrath and hell. And that's what you deserve, and I deserve. And on the flip side, I also know that compared to glory, however difficult your suffering might be right now is considered light and momentary. According to 2 Corinthians 4.17. What does that mean? Well, it means that if somehow you could be given a glimpse of glory, what it will be like. If somehow you could time travel to eternity future and just be given a small little taste of what life with Jesus will be like in glory, then you would come back full of joy knowing what awaits you in Christ no matter what's going on in your life right now. It doesn't mean that there isn't mourning or grief or sorrow from time to time in this life. It doesn't mean that, relatively speaking, your situation is hard. I don't want to diminish that. But it does mean that there's still joy. There's a joy that transcends the circumstances of our lives because it's not rooted in our circumstances, it's rooted in eternity. It's rooted in Jesus, our salvation. And so if you are in Christ, you always have reason for joyful praise. Because again, verse 1 says, the anger of God has been turned away. And not only that, he's become your salvation forevermore. And so that's what characterizes the personal worship of the individual that draws from the wells of salvation. Thankfulness, fearless trust, divine strength, and joyful praise. 
And so now we're going to shift focus from the individual, the first song, to the community of faith, the second song in verses 4 to 6. So if you're taking notes, you can write this heading, the public witness of the church. So we're moving from the personal worship of the individual to the public witness of the church that, dwell, that draws from the wells of salvation. We see here in this text that worship leads to witness. That personal worship will lead to public witness. We'll see this in the next few verses. And just like we did in the first song, we're going to look at a few characteristics. This time we'll see three. Three things that characterize the public witness of a church. And the first thing we see is thankfulness. The second thing we see is widespread evangelism. And the third thing we see is corporate worship. So we'll start with thankfulness. Verse 4. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. And so similar to the last song, this song also begins with a statement of thanks toward God. Now, we've already spent a lot of time talking about thankfulness, so I won't belabor this point. But it is noteworthy here that a community of individuals who are thankful will be a community itself that is thankful. Our church, our community of faith ought to be marked by thankfulness. And so as we spend time together as a church, we ought to take time to regularly thank the Lord for what he's done. When we gather together for these worship services, when we sing to the Lord, when we gather together for corporate prayer, even in our fellowship with one another, we should be expressing thanks to the Lord for one another and for the gospel and for what he's done in our lives. This bears so much fruit in Christian community, the, the fruit of thankfulness. It, it breeds humility and generosity and perspective in our lives. And more than all of that, the Lord at the end of the day deserves our thanks. And so we ought to give him the thanks that he's due. We should make this a regular practice. As a church, Trinity Bible Chapel should be known as a church that is thankful to God and is full of thankful people. We don't complain, we don't grumble. No matter what, we're thankful because we know what God has done and who he is. So thankfulness. Secondly, we see widespread evangelism. Widespread evangelism. The community of faith ought to be marked and characterized by evangelism. Okay, Christ didn't come to save you for no purpose. He's given you a purpose, and part of that purpose is to proclaim a message. You've been saved to be a witness to your salvation. Verse 4 continues. You will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. As we give thanks and call upon God's name in worship, this ought to lead to evangelism. We see in this verse and in verse 5 as well, the next verse, there's a close relationship between worship and evangelism. Okay? If worship is proclaiming the glory of God vertically, then evangelism is proclaiming the glory of God horizontally. And there's overlap there. Sometimes both are taking place at the same time. Worship is proclaiming the glory of God vertically. Evangelism is proclaiming the glory of God horizontally. And the words for make known and proclaim in verse 4 are imperatives. That means these aren't optional. God's people are commanded to tell others about what God has done and to proclaim that his name is exalted. What God has done, his deeds among the peoples, and that his name is exalted. 
I summarized it this way. God's people are to proclaim his saving work and his lordship throughout the earth. Okay, not all of the purposes in evangelism come back to winning converts. Obviously, we want to see souls won to Jesus Christ, amen, but that's not the only purpose in evangelism. We see in this text that part of the purpose of evangelism is simply to assert his lordship, to give him the honor and respect that he's due in public. His evangelism entails a lot more than just winning converts. It's about glorifying God. It's about exalting his name. It's about our own growth and sanctification. It's about loving our neighbors. It's about obedience to texts like these. We've been saved by God so that we might proclaim his lordship and his gospel. We've not been saved to then keep that information about our salvation to ourselves. We've not been saved to hide it under a bushel. No, we must let it shine. And in the darkness of these times, what an opportunity we have to let the light of the gospel shine right now. I can't think back to a time previously, at least in my life, where the harvest was as plentiful as it is right now because of all that we've endured the past 24 months or so. We've seen this. People are asking life's big, big questions, right? Why am I here? What is my purpose? What's the answer to all of the confusion? What, where is the truth? Is there any hope to be found in the midst of the chaos of this world? Who has the answer to those questions? We do. We have the answers to all those questions. The harvest is plentiful, but the Bible says the laborers are few. This is always the problem. There's not enough workers. There's not enough churches being churches. And so the great need for the hours for more laborers and more witnesses for the church to make known and to proclaim. And so let's go back to that desert analogy for a moment. Okay, put yourself back in that desert wasteland. Endless desert. It's super hot. It's dry. It's, it's, there's sand everywhere. You're dehydrated. You're desperately thirsty. But this time around, you're not alone. You look around you and there's others wandering in the desert all around. They too are dehydrated and dying of thirst. All of you have one thing in common that your greatest need is for water. And then all of a sudden, you happen to stumble upon that life-giving well, that inexhaustible well with the most refreshing water imaginable in the middle of this desert. So you have a drink from the well. And your thirst is satisfied and your life has been spared. You've been saved. But at this point, there are still many wandering in the desert around you that have not yet found this well. And it's inexhaustible. It's not limited. It's unlimited. And so what do you do next? Well, it should be obvious, right? You go find as many people as you can and you tell them about the well that you found so that they too can be spared and they can be saved and they can have access to this life-giving water. How unloving would someone have to be to keep that well a secret all to themselves while the other wanderers in the desert die? It should be obvious to us how this illustration ought to apply to our own reality. How many people around you, family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, strangers on the street, are still wandering around in the desert with the wrath of God pointed directly at them? The dreadful, fierce, everlasting wrath of God that we talked about earlier still abides on them. 
And you being a Christian that's tasted God's salvation, that's experienced God's salvation, you have the solution to their greatest problem. You know where they can find safety from their greatest threat. How unloving would we have to be to keep that good news a secret from them? Now would be a good time to remind you that in our church we have an evangelism ministry. So if you want to grow in this, come out to our evangelism ministry. This happens every weekend, usually on Friday nights, sometimes on Saturday mornings, and we go to the streets and we share the gospel with others in an effort to exalt the name of Jesus in public and by God's grace hopefully win souls. And while our church has grown a lot in size over the past two years, two or threefold, Unfortunately, involvement in that ministry has not grown in proportion to the growth of the church. If anything, maybe it's even shrunk in size a little bit from where it was a few years ago. And like I said earlier, the harvest is plentiful right now. People are searching for the truth. The the street team is finding that many are open to talk about the things of God. And so out of obedience to the call of this passage, I would strongly encourage you Especially now that the weather's getting warmer. That's not an excuse anymore. 26 degrees today, I believe. Praise the Lord. As the weather is getting warmer, I'd encourage you to get involved in this ministry. Maybe commit to going out a certain number of times over the next few months. Maybe once a month or two times this summer, whatever it might be. Circle the weekends on your calendar. I need to do this as well. And then be diligent to show up when the time comes. Pass out tracks, share the gospel, have conversations with people. And see the work that God will do in your own life and hopefully what he'll do in the lives of others as you share the gospel. And if you haven't done it before, there'll be leaders there that will help show you the ropes and teach you. And maybe you just come out and observe and pray the first time. We need to see more people involved in this. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And we have the answer to life's biggest threat that these people are dealing with, unbelievers all around us. In the desert wasteland of this world, we've found the life-giving wells of salvation. And so now we ought to tell others where they can find them too. Widespread evangelism. Here's the third and final thing we see about the public witness of the church. We see corporate worship. We see corporate worship. We learn here that worship leads to evangelism, and evangelism leads to worship. It's like a circle. It's cyclical. And so as you worship the Lord, as you experience the riches of the wells of salvation, you'll want others to experience those too. And so you'll evangelize and you'll proclaim about Jesus to others. And then as others get saved, they begin to worship the Lord. And so worship leads to evangelism and evangelism leads to worship. Verses 5 and 6. Sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Remember this call in these last two verses, this song is to be sung by the community of faith because of that you plural in verse 4. And so this is a call to the gathering of God's people to sing praises to the Lord for what He's done and to do so in a way that Let's this be made known in all the earth, according to verse 5. Corporate worship, then, we see is an integral part of our public witness. Okay, you can't separate the two. If there's no corporate worship, there's no public witness. 
Because the two go hand in hand. When we gather together to sing the Lord's praises, what are we doing? We're declaring to others and to God that his name is exalted, that he has done gloriously, according to this text, and that he alone is worthy of our worship. So our worship is part of our witness. And I say that all to, because this has been a very significant topic of discussion in many churches over the last 24 months. How does gathering for worship affect our public witness? And perhaps all of the questions surrounding corporate worship and its importance that have been asked and debated over the past two years, and so many rabbit trails and secondary arguments and all that, but per perhaps they can all be boiled down to how we answer this one question. Is Jesus worthy? Is he worthy or is he not? And if you say, yes, he is worthy of worshiping him the way he's commanded us to worship him, then we ought to do so no matter the cost. Let's not complicate it unnecessarily. Is he worthy or is he not? Which is it? And now to be fair, I don't know any Christian that would say, no, he's not worthy. Every Christian would say, yes, I believe he's worthy. But it certainly seems that many who would answer yes have at least given us reason to question whether or not they really believe that to be true. Our worship is our witness. They go hand in hand. And by God's grace, we've certainly seen this to be true. Our worship has become a witness to our community, to some aroma of death to death. That's not surprising. The Bible told us that would be the case. But to others, we've seen it be an aroma of life to life. We praise God for the many here, even in this room, that have come over the past two years as a result of our worship, our public witness, and have found Jesus and his wells of salvation and all glory to God for that. But this is how this works. Worship leads to witness, and witness leads to worship. And so those are the three things that characterize our public witness. So in closing, we've looked at the personal worship of the individual that draws from the wells of salvation. They're characterized by thankfulness, fearless trust, divine strength, and joyful praise. And we've looked at the public witness of the church that draws from the wells of salvation. She is characterized by thankfulness, widespread evangelism, and corporate worship. Now, who wants to see this kind of fruit born in your life and in the life of this church? I know I do. How do, we do, how do we see that happen? Well, we continue to come back to the wells of salvation. We continue to come back to and to celebrate and rehearse and remember and minister the gospel of Jesus Christ. We continue to remind ourselves of what we've been saved from and of all that God has done for us in Jesus. We continue to abide in Christ every day and unite around him as a community that his living water might satisfy us continually. J. Alec Motyer said, speaking about verse 3, he said, The God who saves continues to minister salvation to his people as an ever-available reality to enjoy. It's always available to us. When we rise early in the morning, the wells are there, available to us to be satisfied and to enjoy. When we go to bed late at night, the wells are there, available for us to enjoy. When we gather for corporate worship, it's there, available for us to enjoy. Because his gospel wells of salvation are inexhaustible. And the more we learn to drink from them and be refreshed by them, the more we'll see thanksgiving and joy and worship well up in our hearts once again. And we'll see that zeal return to our lives such that we cannot help but tell everyone about God 
and what he's done for us. Proclaim that his name is exalted in all the earth.